0: The greatest evidence of the Spirit-filled life is not dramatic signs and wonders, but rather love for other believers. As Christians, we combat self-obsession and vain competition through humble confession before God. In this message from Galatians chapter six, verses one through 10, David Platt warns us against self-centeredness and self-righteousness while pointing us to the marks of true spiritual community. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Free to Love have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 6. I had the opportunity two summers ago at a conference where I was preaching to meet Aaron, and I'm so thankful for the way that he allows the supremacy of God's Word to lead in worship And so I am honored to serve alongside him on this stage today. Galatians chapter 6, I want to express my thanks to Ben DeLoach for bringing the word last week, the excellent job he did with it. I am, quite frankly, a little bit disappointed that um, Ben did not properly equip this body through that text with a song that would help you remember the fruit of the Spirit. But I will forgive him for that. If you'd like to learn that song, it is available on Secret Church DVD, and it will change your life. <laughs> I want you to know how much I, I love you, how much I appreciate you, how much I thank God for you as this faith family, how much I pray for you. I was praying for you last Sunday morning as I was running. You were on my mind. Well, m- part of the time from... I'll be honest, from mile about 18 to 26, there was nothing but misery on my mind. So thank you for praying for me. I, I, I miss, I miss this community of faith whenever I'm not here. I hope, I hope you do as well. I think there's a sense, you know, this last weekend, there was a the marathon. I was with my, my brothers and my mom and some old friends and It's just a bond there with family, and it's the same with a faith family. There's a bond when the people of God gather together that that you miss when you're away from the community of faith. And it's really what Galatians chapter 6 is going to show us today, a picture of what we've seen in Galatians 5, the importance of the Spirit of God. What we're going to see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 10, is a picture of how the Spirit of God fills the church and the community of faith, and the Spirit of God creates a bond between us as a people that, that creates the richest context for relationships, richer than family context, blood family context for relationships, richer than any other context for relationships on the planet. We're not just a club and organization or an institution or just a religious group. We're a, a people united by the very Spirit of God, and there's, there's power in that. There's beauty in that. And what I want us to talk about today is spiritual community and how we're free to love one another as a result of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Uh, you've got the notes that are in your worship guide that are not really notes at all. Um, I, I ask you to forgive me. This, this text, as we're going to see, in some ways it seems almost a little almost a little disjointed, just some of the thoughts here, and I had the hardest time really kind of bringing this down to how is this going to best look, and so by the time came for uh, turning in the notes, I didn't have, have a lot of confidence in what I had at that point, so you'll have a little extra work to do this morning, but there's one truth that I want us to see in Galatians chapter 6 that really, really is all over Galatians 5 and 6, but we're going to kind of hone in on it today, and that truth is this. The greatest evidence of the Spirit-filled life is love for one another. The greatest evidence, the greatest evidence of the Spirit-filled life is love for one another. This is is what we saw earlier in Galatians chapter five a couple of weeks ago, verse 13 and 14, when Paul said, you my brothers were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on and starts talking about living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is what? It starts with love. fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the first picture that we have in this fruit of the Spirit. And then you come down to the end of chapter 5, verse 26. That's where I want us to, to start this morning. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The man who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. God, we pray that you would take your word this morning in context of our worship as a community of faith and that you would show us what it means to love one another, that you would bear this fruit in us of love by your spirit, and you would Help us to get practical handles on what that looks like in the context of the relationships with the people that we're sitting next to and around at this moment. We thank you for the church. We pray that you would make us, mold us into the church that you desire for us to be the spiritual community that brings you great glory in a lost and, and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This text and this truth, this truth, greatest evidence of the Spirit-filled life is love for one another, I I believe is so important because of so many of the misconceptions and misunderstandings that people have, Christians have, about the Holy Spirit today. Usually when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, the topics that really start to come to the forefront are tongues and second baptisms and prophecies, and, and there's a place, obviously, where Scripture talks about those things, but... But what we need to see here in Galatians chapter 6 is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And we need to be reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he said, when I, If I speak in tongues of men, but have not love, then I'm like a resounding gong. If I, if I have prophecies that I speak, but I have not love, he says, then I am nothing. The greatest evidence of the spirit filled life is love for another. This is where we need to realize that evidence of the spirit filled life maybe is not primarily about emotional highs as it is about practical. Acts of love that we show to one another. And that's what Paul brings us down. He won't even let love remain an abstract concept here in Galatians chapter 6. He says, Here's some concrete, practical ways that we love one another. So, what I want us to do is I want us to take this text and we're going to kind of split it up into a few different parts. And we're going to pause after those couple of different parts and we're going to respond to God's word. Remember, worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. We see God's revelation, we respond. So, that's that's what we're going to do. And and Aaron and these guys are going to help us do that. So, here's where I want us to start. I want to show you four enemies of spiritual community. Four enemies of Christian community and the church of spiritual community. They are simple, but they are, are deadly. And if we allow these enemies to have a foothold in the community of faith then we will become just like any other club or organization or religious group in the world for that matter. First enemy, enemies of spiritual community. Number one, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Now all these enemies have have pride and self-exaltation at the core. Look at verse 26. Right before we get into chapter six, let us not become conceited having vain glory in ourselves, centered on ourselves. Because when we are, two things happen. We begin to provoke each other and begin to envy each other. That word provoke, it's a unique verb in the New Testament that really literally means to challenge someone, like you're challenging someone to a contest, like you want to show your superiority over them. We provoke one another or we envy one another. We we think we're inferior to others. And what What we've got here is a picture of looking at ourselves in comparison to others, really in competition with others. This is what Paul talked about up in verse 15 in Galatians chapter 5. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. It's a picture of the way the world approaches relationships. Then he says this here in verse 26. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Then you get over to verse 4. In chapter 6, and Paul says, each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself, listen to this, without comparing himself to somebody else. Here's the deal. Competition, unhealthy comparison with other people, breeds conceit, conceit, breeds self-centeredness. Competition. This is what C.S. Lewis talks about when he talks about pride. In mere Christianity, one of the classics of the Christian faith, mere Christianity, the great, Chapter on pride that he has in that book, he talks about. Listen to what he said. He starts by saying, If you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. So, so, let's just confess we're all conceited. He talks about that whole chapter. He talks about pride. Humility is the great unattainable. You try and you try and you try to be humble, and then when you get there, you're proud of it and you have to start all over. It's just, all right, we're just there. We're all, we're conceited people. And if you think you're not, then you've proved the point. Okay. And then he goes on, he says, pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. This is the picture Scripture gives us. It's pride, the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve say, no, it's our authority, not your authority over us. We do what we want. It's pride that undergirds every every sin. Listen to what C.S. Lewis does when he links pride with competition. I think it helps us understand what Scripture's teaching us here. Lewis says, each person's Pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. This is the picture the result of the sinful nature in us, we're competing with one another. We think we're doing well if we're doing better than the next guy. We think we're not doing well if somebody else is doing better than us. And We're constantly looking around and we bring this into the community of faith. We bring this, bring this into the church. I, God, if I could just be completely honest, as I've studied this text this week, has been uncovering some ugly roots of self-centeredness and pride in my own life regarding relationships with others. I I'm a competitive person. I come from a competitive family. Uh, we we can make anything into a competition. We sit around the dinner table and, and brothers and I would compete over who can eat or jello the fastest or uh, with no hands. And we just make it as <laughs> complex as possible. We've got, we've got to make some. We just want to, we don't want to just sit down as a family and have dinner. We want to have a competition. Somebody's got to win in this thing. And and the danger is when When I, or when we, when we bring that into the church and our spiritual lives, now this is not to say that that competition in every sphere of life is a bad thing, and we are battling against sin and Satan and darkness and evil. So there's a sin, but there is no room for competition in the church. Let us not become conceited, Paul says, provoking and envying each other. And it's exactly what was going on here in Galatians. Remember this picture of legalism? Who's done more? To earn favor before God, what have you done? I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. Did you see what he did? You know, I thought I was doing bad till I realized what this guy over here was doing. Now, don't misunderstand. There's there's a healthy way in which we look to others. There's a healthy way in which we're supposed to be able to look to each other and see Christ in each other and be spurred on toward Christ through each other. That's why I love reading biographies. They show me a picture of Christ and men and women throughout history that makes me fall on my face and say, I want more of Christ in me. I want the joy and the sacrifice and the freedom that I see in their lives. So that's a good thing. But, But whenever we begin to look at a man or a woman in the community of faith, And we begin to, in our hearts and our thoughts, begin to assert superiority over them or think I'm doing better than them or we begin to think, well, they're doing so much better than I am. We look at ourselves as inferior to them. We're missing the point. When we look at any man or any woman, every man and every woman in the community of faith, we don't provoke or envy. We love and serve each other, period. Not in a rat race in the church. We're jockeying for position, status, leave that behind. Self-centeredness. We've got to be careful. You know where this exposes itself the clearest. This exposes itself the clearest in our gossip in the church. This is a picture. Verse 15 of chapter 5. You keep on biting and devouring each other. Here's the reality. Anytime you speak about me in a way that does not build up my character or I speak about you in a way that does not build up your character, then all we are doing is exposing the self-centeredness that is at the core of our sinful nature that we have been freed from. God rid us from gossip. I, I'm concerned about this too. When I, when I look at the, even the Christian world that we live in, I, the, the Christian magazines that are sent to me every week, and I look at the headlines and, and the way churches and ministries are talking about. Here's the biggest church, and here's the fastest growing church, and here's the most successful church, or here's the finest Christian ministry. We use language like that. Why? What's the purpose? Why are we asserting superiority in one and saying, well, these are less over here, and these are more? Who's getting the glory in this picture? Self-centeredness is an enemy of spiritual community second enemy, spiritual community, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. This was the underlying issue, remember, in Galatia. Because of the legalism that was permeating that church, people asserting their righteousness because of what they did. And we know legalists, legalists delight in heaping burdens on other people. You need to do these things in order to be righteous. That's what the, these Judaizers were doing to the church in Galatia. It's what Jesus did sternly rebukes legalistic Pharisees for doing. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, he says, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Legalists, whenever we're trying to please God, then we're always trying to tell others about what they have to do in order to please God. Do these things. Self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-righteousness. Third enemy, self-sufficiency. We're going to talk in a minute when you get to verse Two, carrying each other's burdens. We're going to talk about what that means, but suffice to say at this point, Paul's implying that we all have burdens. Every single one of us in this room has burdens that we carry, and not one of us is intended to carry them alone. But here's where that pride comes in. Pride seeps in and says, well, I, I'm going to gather together in this room I'm going, to, I'm going to put up a front like everything's okay. I don't need the people around me. I can do this thing on my own. that sounds, well, it sounds like you're successful and confident according to world standards, but it misses the whole point of Christian community according to biblical standards. We do need each other. We are weak. We are weak without each other. That's the picture. There's a myth of self-sufficiency that dominates our individualistic culture and our individualistic approach to church that we have to be careful to guard against Self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and fourth, enemy. This may be one of the most subtly dangerous ones. Self-esteem. Self-esteem. Now, I want you to follow with me here. Chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, we live in a world that says, if we want our relationships with others to be good, we need to think highly of ourselves, right? This is the whole self-esteem doctrine that not only dominates the world, but dominates much of contemporary Christianity. It's important to have high self-esteem. It's all over, it's all over the place. It's in other world Religions, founder of Buddhism, said, you... You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. Then you've got experts on relationships, researchers on personal growth, who say if, if you aren't good, exact quote, if you aren't good at loving yourself, you will have a difficult time loving anyone else, since you'll resent the time and energy you give another person that you aren't giving to yourself. That's enough to send you to counseling right there. Another... <laughs> Another one said, listen to this, there is overwhelming evidence that the higher the level of self-esteem, the higher the level of self-esteem, the more likely one will be to treat others with respect, kindness, and generosity. So self-esteem, high self-esteem is equated with respect, kindness, and generosity toward others. If you want to be kind and respectful and generous toward others and have high self-esteem, focus on esteeming yourself. Think highly of yourselves Have a high self-esteem. It will make your relationships with others better. That is not what Scripture is teaching. It's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is what? Nothing. When he's nothing. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul says, there's nothing good in me. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. How's that? For the power of positive thinking. There's many things we embrace, maybe even in the name, and I in no way want to be critical of psychology as a whole, which is related to biblical counseling, but there's much even in Christian psychology and Christian counseling that it says we need to esteem ourselves and goes against Scripture, because Scripture is saying, "He's nothing. There's nothing good in me, and apart from me, you can do nothing. What if what if the way we love others is not about thinking and about and esteeming and revolving our thoughts around ourselves, But what if love for others is about realizing there is nothing good in you apart from Jesus Christ? And therefore... You need Christ for every good thing in you. And the key to relationships with other people is not a high self-esteem, but a high Christ esteem. What if valuing Christ and esteeming Christ and enjoying Christ and surrendering everything in us to Christ is the key to loving others, the key to generosity and sacrifice for others, this whole picture, Galatians 2:20 has given us. When crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I want Christ to be esteemed in me. This is the beauty of what Christ does. His Spirit lives in us and produces fruit, love. He does the work. Spirit-filled community is marked by. Christ steaming in our hearts and in our minds. And as a result, Christ producing love for each other. So don't focus on yourself. Focus on Christ. Christ in you. Fix your eyes, your thoughts, and your heart's affections on Christ. And in the process, process you'll begin to discover what it means to love one another with a spirit-filled love. So these are the enemies. Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and self-esteem. Now, in order to combat those enemies, I want to show you one one essential for spiritual community that combats all four of those. And that essential is this. Combating self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and self-esteem is this one essential. Self-examination. Self-examination. It's in verse 4 and 5. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself which we'll talk about that later, without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Basically what Paul is saying is instead of looking at your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes in view of how you're doing in comparison to the people around you, put your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions before the lens of the holiness of God. And now you will begin to see yourself rightly. It's easy to compare ourselves to each other but to put our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions before the holiness of God and to have any and every facet of them that is not God-honoring and Christ-exalting, exposed. We find ourselves a very needy people We find ourselves in need of grace and mercy before a holy God. And in the process, we discover a reservoir of grace and mercy to now show to other people. Because when we see ourselves rightly before God, then we're freed up to begin to see others rightly before God. And we are not interested in provoking or envying them. We are interested in loving and serving them. That happens through self-examination. The way you combat vain competition in our hearts and our lives and in the church is through humble confession before God. Combat competition with confession. That's the picture of self examination. So here's what I want us to do I want us to take a few moments to spend time in self examination this morning. Aaron and these guys are going to lead us in a time where we come aside. There's a reason why, when you look at biblical worship, confession before God is a non-negotiable element in worship. There's a reason, not just for it. Don't miss this. Confession before God is not just important for our relationship with God. Confession before God is vitally important for our relationships with each other. Because it's confession before God that helps helps us to realize who we are, who Christ is and His mercy toward us, and then we begin to look at each other very, very differently. And so what I want to invite us to do for the next few moments is to spend time in self-examination, to spend time in worship through confession. And I'm going to invite you to pray where you are, to... Pray alone. Pray together, if you'd like, or if you'd like to, to maybe even come and to kneel here at the front, if that would be something appropriate for you to do. But I want to invite you to take the next few moments and and delay your life and your thoughts and your attitudes, your actions, to lay yourself before the holiness of God, and to ask Him to expose any every area of your life that needs cleansing, that needs purifying. Any roots of pride, roots where you're asserting your authority, either above His or, or above others around you. Maybe if, if it's appropriate, if there are people around you that you have sinned against. This is what Scripture says. when It says confess your sins to each other. If that would be appropriate, then I would invite you to take advantage of that opportunity during this time. Maybe, maybe you're in this room and you have never seen your life and perceived yourself in view of God's holiness in the next few moments, for the first time, you're going to see the sin in your life exposed in front of a holy God. And if that's the case, I would invite you to know that, that holy God is also a merciful God who promises to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from your sin, redeem you from your sin through what Jesus did on the cross as a payment for your sin. And I would invite you, maybe for the first time in this room this morning, to trust in Christ his death and his resurrection to cover over your sin To say during this time God I need your mercy or if you know his mercy if you're a follower of Christ and have trusted in Christ to come before him in self-examination this morning and say God and where am I disobeying you where am I failing to obey you Where are the sins of omission so to speak in my life you expose them for me and in the process transform not only my relationship with you my relationship with others and no we do First John 1 9 we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness you come before we come before a holy God in this moment but also a merciful and gracious God and we find cleansing and purification there but we miss that if we don't take time for self-examination so let me invite you to do that now they're going to Lead us in just music and then song. You feel free to pray. Join in with them if you would like at some point. But I want to invite you to take the next few moments between you and the holy God of the universe in self-examination. Father, we praise you because you are supremely holy and yet supremely gracious. You are just and justifier. You have poured out your wrath against sin on your son instead of us. And for that, we bow our hearts and we say thank you. And we praise you for the privilege of confession. We praise you that we are not cast out of your presence immediately in our sin, but we are saved from it, cleansed from it, and able to stand before you. Help us, God, help us to see who we are in light of your holiness and grace, and in the process, help us to see others in light of your holiness and grace. Transform our community with one another through our confession before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's interesting in Galatians chapter 6 how Paul is, is telling us how to love one another, but the majority of the first five verses of Galatians chapter 6 are telling us how to guard ourselves. There's, there's an importance there that we, if we don't guard ourselves in our purity and our holiness then we will not know how to love each other. So, with that foundation, four enemies and one essential spiritual community, what I want to show you briefly is our five commands for spiritual community. And we're going to split these up into two groups. First two in, in verses 1-5, through five, and then the last three in verses 6-10. through 10. But Five commands for spiritual community. Here's the key, because even, even when I mention the word commands, we, we we're almost kind of sensitive, maybe a little hypersensitive to that word because of what we've seen in Galatians at this point, because we're not slaves to the law. We're not slaves to commands of God. So how can we talk about obeying commands and not be legalistic? How can we talk about obedience and not be slaves? And this is where the key is. Don't forget this. The key is Christ never commands us to do Anything on our own. He never commands us to do anything that He intends for us to do on our own. Every command of Christ is a call for us to trust Christ to do this in us. Every command from Christ is a call for us to trust Christ who's living in us to do this in us. When we talk about, when we see a command that says, Love one another, love is not a work of the flesh. Love is a fruit of the what? The Spirit. He says, love one another. I'm going to put my Spirit inside of you, and my Spirit in you is going to produce this kind of love. So everything I command you to do, I'm going to accomplish in you. And so live by faith. It's that whole picture we've seen over and over and over again in Galatians. So even when we think about these commands, these are commands that the Spirit of Christ that lives in us wants to enable us to accomplish, enable us to obey. So, with that kind of background, first command that he gives us, confront one another in your sin. First command that he gives us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, confront one another in your sin. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, this is huge, but we are not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. The reason is because... I'm convinced that this is one of the most neglected facets of the New Testament church and the contemporary church today. It's not always been the case that church discipline and church restoration have been so absent in the church as it is today, but what we're going to do uh, about month and a half from now, beginning of March, we're going to dive into a study of church restoration and discipline in God's Word. Because well, I know even as as I mention that, there's some people think, oh no, what what do you mean? Discipline one another? We're going to start calling each other out in sin? What does that look like? And there's obviously a wrong way to do that. But it's unbiblical to avoid that at the same time. It is not an option for a Spirit-filled follower of Christ to look at a brother or sister who's caught in a sin and say, well, that's not my business. That's their problem. That's not an option for a spirit-filled follower of Christ. Because we're in this thing together. There's a way to obviously restore one another gently in a way that shows the love and the beauty and the grace and the mercy of Christ in our relationships with each other. And we've got to figure out how to do that in God's Word. So that is far more than we're going to dive into this morning. But just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. It is a biblical command for us to confront one another in our sin. The Spirit does this in the community of faith for a reason. We'll get to that later. Confront one another in your sin, first command. Second command is to comfort one another in your struggles comfort one another in your struggles. When you get to chapter 6 verse 2 and he says carry each other's burdens and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ, he's basically saying almost what he said in verse 1 just in a more general fashion. Because there's a sense in which if, if a brother's caught in sin then is burdened by that sin. He's carrying the weight of that sin and temptation and oppression in his heart and his life. And we're supposed to help each other in that. And this is how we help him by restoring him Helping him climb out of that by the grace and the mercy of Christ, Spirit of Christ, in his or her life. So there's a sense in which that that refers to helping each other in sin. But it's broader here. Carry each other's burdens. Like I mentioned earlier, we we all have, the implication here in Galatians chapter 6 is that we all have burdens. We all have burdens that we are carrying. Maybe it is sin or temptations that we're struggling with. Maybe in the last. A few moments of self-examination, there are some sins in your life, some things that you just can't seem to get out from under. You keep going back to it, over over and over again. And what the Bible is saying is you're not intended to fight that battle alone. Not one of us is. You're intended to help each other, carry each other's burdens, but not just in sin. All kinds of struggle, this could be could be physical struggle, could be illness, could be emotional struggle, could be depression, worry, doubt, anxiety that you struggle with, confusion that you're wrestling with about a decision that you have, maybe family struggle, maybe it's struggle with kids, struggle with parents, struggle with your spouse, maybe it's divorce, maybe it's struggles at work, it's unemployment, it's financial struggles, it's all kinds of different things that this could be. It's grief, it's pain, it's loss, it's desertion, it's loneliness. All, all the burdens that we, we bear that are represented all across this room. It is an amazing thought for me as a pastor to stand before a room with this many people in it and just to consider the number of burdens that are being carried all across this room. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight of the fact that the people who are sitting next to us are carrying burdens and the Bible says they are never intended to carry them alone. So, here's, it's a command. It's not an option in the church. It's an obligation for us to carry each other's burdens. For us to shoulder each other's burdens. Martin Luther said, a Christian needs broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and sisters. We are broad-shouldered Husky-boned, whatever that means, people. That's, that's what we're intended to be. I, in my study this week, came across a covenant, kind of a membership covenant from a Baptist church in England in 1790. So this is 18th century membership covenant in a Baptist church. I want you to hear what they agreed to, how they committed to each other. When you became a member of this church, you didn't just sign a card. Listen to this. We agree to walk in love toward those with whom we stand connected in the bonds of Christian fellowship. As to the effect of this, we will pray much for one another. As we have opportunity, we will associate together for religious purposes those of us who are in more comfortable situations in life than some of our other brethren with regard to the good things of providence will administer as we have ability and see occasion to their necessities. We will bear one another's burdens, sympathize with and encourage one another. We will watch over one another for good. We will studiously avoid giving or taking offenses. Thus we will make it our study to fulfill the law of Christ. These things and whatever else may appear enjoined by the word of God, we promise in the strength of divine grace to observe and practice. But knowing our insufficiency for anything that is spiritually good in and of ourselves, we look up to him who gives power to the faint, rejoicing that in the Lord we have not only righteousness but strength. So hold us up, Lord, and we shall be safe. Amen. That's good. That's a, that's, I want to join that church. That's a good church. A part that, you see the picture here? Sure, it's not a club, organization, just this religious group. It's a community that says, we're in this thing for each other. I'm here for you. You are here for me. This is what we're created to do in spiritual community. This is one of the reasons why we're in the process, and I mentioned something about this on the front cover of your worship guide, in the process of redesigning the membership process for Brook Hills. because Not because we want to make it tough to become a member of Brook Hills. Not because we need to Say, we've got to check off all these boxes in order to become a member of Brook Hills. But because we want, to, we want to realize, it's important for us as a community of faith to realize what it means to be a part of the church, what it means to be committed to each other, what it means to bear each other's burdens. Now, this is why. This is why we constantly say, constantly encourage one another in this faith family to get involved in a small group. We, we constantly talk about that because the reality is this kind of burden carrying that Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 is talking about cannot be accomplished in a theater style room with 2,000 other people once a week. It's impossible. Others can't bear your burdens in that kind of context, and you can't bear others' burdens in that kind of context. So it makes no sense to be a part of a community of faith where you just gather together with 2,000 every week and then go back and then do it again and go back and do it again. There's a sense in which we, we are called, commanded to be in situations, relationships where we can bear each other's burdens. And so I would encourage you, yet again I would encourage you, if you're not involved in a small group, to get plugged into a small group. Now at the same time, that doesn't mean that that we can't take advantage of opportunities when we do all gather together to bear each other's burdens as well. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, had some time where where folks came down to the front who were carrying specific burdens, struggles that they were walking through, and we had some time where they knelt and prayed over them, and I realized, though, that for some, that even that makes, makes you uncomfortable. Even some are maybe not even physically able to do that. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to pause. And I want us to take a few moments, and I want us to be the body of Christ to one another in accordance with Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. What I'm going to invite you to do is in just a moment, if you would be willing, if you are carrying some sort of burden, maybe it is, maybe it is a sin that you just can't seem to get out of, keep wrestling with, it. maybe it is one of those other facets of struggle physically in your family, emotionally, whatever it may be. Remember, the, we're combating the myth of self-sufficiency here. That we are intended not to walk with these burdens alone, but to share them with others. What I'm going to invite you to do is, if you would say, yeah, you know, I'm in here this morning, and I've got a, I've got a burden that I would love for the body of Christ to pray for me in. Nobody's going to ask you specifically what that is. You're not going to have to share everything that's going on in those details. What I'm going to ask you to do is in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to to stand where you are. And once people have stood across the room, then what we're going to simply do is as the body of Christ, we're just going to gather around the people who have stood, and we're going to pray for them. And we're going to pray silently, pray aloud, whatever is most comfortable for you. But I want us to have a time where we, in this room, realize the community of faith that we are and we take advantage of the opportunity we have to carry each other's burdens. So, if you would be willing, I hope, I hope you, you find in this community of faith a safe place for this to happen, but uh, I would invite you, if you or your family, walking through something, you would say, you know, I really would like the body of Christ just to pray for me today. I want to invite you to stand where you are right now, all across this room, to stand and want to give a few moments for those folks to stand again you don't, you don't have to share what these things are that are going on in your life you just be saying you know not intended to carry this on my own and, and so I'd like I'd like to have the body of Christ just come around me and, and pray for me if you remember this faith family great if you're not great too this is body of Christ gathering around each other saying we. we're Not intended to carry burdens alone, we're gonna carry burdens for each other. Anybody else? Okay, you see these folks standing? Let me invite those of you who are around these folks, you see those folks that are standing near you, if you'll just move toward them. And I wanna invite you to take the next few moments just to lay your hands on their shoulders and, and begin to pray for them again. You can pray silently, you can pray aloud. Let me invite you just to surround one another and to pray for each other. After you've praying, you feel free. These guys are gonna lead us in song in the background. You, you pray as long as, as you would like and then we'll close out our time. But let's, let's, let's bear, carry each other's burdens together. I wanna to show you something I had not planned on showing you. Not that I need to add anything to what we've got left, but take a left from Galatians into the second Corinthians chapter seven. I want to show you, I want to make sure we don't miss the connection before, between what we just did in praying for each other and then what we just sang. I want you to look at second Corinthians chapter seven, verse five. I want you to listen to what Paul says. He says, when we came into Macedonia, This body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. So here's Paul saying, I had burdens. It's carrying. Listen to this. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my Joy was greater than ever. You see the connection here. Paul realized that God was the God of all comfort when he received comfort from Titus, when he received comfort from the church, when, when we receive comfort from one another, we realize that comfort comes from who? From God. And so we pray for each other and we surround each other and we say, Yes, we're carrying each other's burdens. And in this way, we bring glory to who? God, because He is the one who comforts. How does He comfort us? Through community of faith, through each other. This is why. It's why Christianity cannot be lived in isolation. It's why it doesn't make sense to anonymously attend a church. It it makes no sense. We're a community of faith where we will miss God and His comfort, His greatness, worth, if we neglect commands like Galatians 6.2 to bear one another's burdens. So praise God for His comfort and for showing, His showing that comfort through others. Come back to Galatians 6 now. We're going to fly through the last part of this passage. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Three more commands that I I want to show you. What's interesting is we come to this last part, and there's a lot of debate, discussion among biblical scholars who've studied this passage a lot more than I have about exactly what Paul's addressing here, what was going on in this Galatian context that he was addressing. Because when you get to verse 6, most scholars think that Paul is talking about, when he says anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor, most scholars think that that's a reference to who's teaching, the one who's teaching the Word in the church make sure he's provided for financially. And many people think that Verses 6 through 10 are all about how we use our finances. When you get to verse 7 and 8, and he's talking about sowing and reaping. It's the same picture and imagery that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 to talk about giving material possessions, giving material resources. And then you get down to verse 10 and it says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. That phrase in the original language of the New Testament was a euphemism in the first century for giving alms to the poor. And so... There's a lot of people who believe this is, this is all about how we use our financial resources, some who don't believe that. So basically, the way I understand this text, really whether, whether it's referring specifically to financial resources, and Paul's addressing some things in Galatia at that time, or just resources in general, the, the same truths apply. And so I want us to think about what Paul is saying for the way we use our resources. Yes, our money, but also our time and our energy and our talents and our gifts, our words, our actions. How we use our resources in the community of faith. Three more commands for spiritual community. 11st 13rd one, third one, we've had two so far. Number three, share your resources generously. Share your resources generously. This is verse six. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Paul is using a word here, koinonia, for fellowship in the New Testament. Talk about the relationship between the one who teach teaches in the church and the ones who are taught in the church, and there's a sharing, there's a relationship. And the picture that Paul does give us at different points is, he encourages the church to provide for teachers of the word, that the teacher of the word provides spiritual treasure, that the people who are taught provide material treasure, so that that person can teach the word and devote themselves to that. I'll be honest, it's it's. A little bit awkward, if not even somewhat self-serving to preach Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, to say, well, as, you're, as the one who's teaching the Word to you, don't forget to share good things with me. So that, that's not, not the direction I want to take, and here's why, because, well, first of all, this is not an issue in this church context. I praise God and want to take advantage of this opportunity in this text to thank you for the way that you share, even materially, not just with me, but with other leaders in the church. I have praised God continually since the end of this last year with all of the economic struggles that we had in our country. We ended the year over budget, and we gave more last year than this church has ever given in the past. That's reason to praise God for your generosity and for the community, the fellowship, to thank you, those of you who faithfully give to the community of faith for your obedience. Thank you for your obedience to this. And maybe those of you who are not giving faithfully to the community of faith to consider how this command might play out in your life and family. But I want to thank this church body and even take it a step deeper. What Paul's doing here is he's reminding the church of how important it is that the Word is taught, it's why a teacher needs to be provided for, because that fundamental task of teaching and preaching the Word is central to his role as a leader in the church. And this is where I want to take another opportunity to thank you, to thank you as a faith family for, for the way you want the Word. I love preaching to this faith family and joy and God gives me opportunities to travel, but it doesn't compare to people that gather together and know we're going to open our Bibles from the start and we're going to dive in and we're going to study the Word. And a people who expect me to have been in the Word and, and who make sure that you, you provide, whether you know this or not, you provide so that I do have that time in the Word. Amidst, amidst other responsibilities, you know you believe this Word is important, just, just so you know. The only reason I share this is just, well, to be honest, I, ha- I have an accountability before you, but so you know, during the week, because of what you provide, I, I spend 20 to 25, if not sometimes 30 hours in text preparing to preach that text to you as a community of faith. You might you might think, well, Dave, you could cut that in half if you preach a little shorter. And I realize that. I, I realize that. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'll be honest with you. Every, just about every single Sunday, I got at least two hours worth of material. I actually cut to get down. And I, I cut a lot. Like Saturday night, what else do I cut? Sunday morning, what else do I cut? So I, just, just know there's cutting going on to get to this point. So... Anyway, but here's why I do that. Here's why I do that. Because if this church is built on my thoughts or my opinions, my ideas, then we are wasting our time. We're wasting our lives in this church. But if this word is clearly and accurately represented week by week by week, our lives will be changed for all of eternity. Not because of communication ability, or words, or thoughts, or ideas of a speaker, or pastor, or preacher, or whatever, but because the Word of God is good. And so I thank you for, for desiring that, providing for that, not begrudging the time that it takes to do that. I, I appreciate that from you as a faith family. And then if I could just continue to thank you one step further, one step further, I want to thank you for sharing your obedience generously. And here's what I mean by that sharing good things, first thing that came to my mind when I was reading this text, I thought about the way that I hear about your obedience to the word, whether you're sharing with me personally, through emails, through others, you're not hearers of the word. You are doers of the word. And I feel like Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 when he says, I live because you are standing firm in the Lord. I find, I find life, I experience life when I hear and I get an email, and I wish, I wish I could respond to all them. It kills me not to respond to all the emails that say, listen to what God is doing. Listen to this. Just know that I read those, and I fall on my face in worship. Listen, listen to this email from an anonymous Brook Hills member last, last fall, sharing good things. Last Sunday, uh, you apologized to us for, my, for being too forward. You remember, remember that? November, Sunday, when uh, I just want, I want to be a, a patient, compassionate pastor. But sitting about the fourth row in, I about stood up and yelled, don't apologize. We needed to hear that. Do you know what I did that Sunday? You told us how rich we are. My wife and I went home, emptied all our clothes onto the bed, got several bags of canned goods and all our son's baby clothes he's grown out of, including the toys he doesn't play with anymore. I took $700 cash that I was saving to upgrade the front lawn and drove over to the projects downtown, and I prayed... I prayed for the people that I didn't know who were about to receive what I had too much of. The first house was a man my age of 30 who had a baby and needed some work clothes. Perfect, I had my clothes to give him and the baby toys and clothes. He needed money for groceries so I gave him $100. The next house had three boys all under the age of 12 so I gave them our TV, VCR and two video game consoles. Their mother needed the same groceries, so I gave her $100. The next house had a couple who needed some clothing for the wife and a car payment, so I gave her my wife's clothes and $100. We prayed with each family and told them we came with God. At the time, I didn't feel the need to say I was with a certain church because I wanted God to get the credit, not a building. I got such a rush from this that we got home and got more things together to give away. My wife and I are now serving at Jimmy Hale, Meals on Wheels, and I'm going to start teaching art and graphics at the Jimmy Hale Learning Center. I don't need an apology from God for lighting a fire under my feet. My wife and I will continue Continue to serve in and around our community and abroad in others' communities. Thank you for breaking down God's word to the hearts and minds that need to wake up and smell the coffee. Ha! Huh? Thank, thank you for sharing your obedience generously. So, thank you, thank, thanks. Share your resources generously. That's what the Bible's telling us to do. It's what you're doing. Second command, fourth command, I guess. Sow your resources eternally. I'm going to fly through this. Verses six, Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. A man reaps what he sows. You, you sow barley, you don't reap wheat. You sow sunflower seeds, you don't reap apple trees. Here's the reality. We will reap eternally what we sow here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. We don't have time to read it, but go there. Go there and you'll see Paul talking about sowing your Financial resources. Not to the flesh, but to the spirit. We have, ladies and gentlemen, for better or for worse, we're just not going to be able to leave that radical series behind as long as we study this book. With our material possessions and our finances, we have a choice. We can invest in that which pleases the flesh and bears earthly fruit or we can sow to that which pleases the Spirit and bears eternal fruit. And there are still 30,000 children today who are dying of either starvation or preventable diseases. They have not left that sermon series behind, and therefore neither can we. Are we going to sow our resources, time, money? Eternally, not temporally. Final command, sow your resources, share your generous, resources generously, sow your resources eternally, and finally, spend your resources selflessly. Spend your resources selflessly. He says, don't, don't be weary in doing good. Don't give up. Let us not give up. Got to mile 18, I was weary. Miles 18 through 23 were, in fact, miserable. And I realized at that point that I could finish under the time that I had planned if I had my fastest miles, those last three miles. And so I envisioned that finish line, and I said, this is my chance. I, at the time, thought there's no chance I'll ever do anything like this again. This was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. And so either I do it now, or I never meet this time barrier. And so I'm going to do it now. And so it ran. I, I want to encourage you. We live the Spirit-filled life. It will not be easy. We will not always see immediate fruit around us. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to press on and never become weary in doing good. William Carey, 1793, moved to India to reach unreached people with the gospel. For seven years, he worked and toiled and labored and saw no one come to Christ. He wrote home to his sisters in England and said, I, I feel like a crop's about to come up then it gets washed out over and over and over again. But then in 1800, December of 1800, he had the opportunity to baptize the first Hindu convert to Christianity there in his ministry in the Ganges River. One of his friends wrote, remember India, land of a million gods? His friend wrote, Ye gods of stone and clay, did you not tremble when in the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust? And that was the beginning of a harvest of souls that God would bless William Carey and his co workers with. We may not see immediate fruit of spirit filled love, but be confident a harvest is coming. Father, we pray that you would make us into this kind of community. We pray that you would mold us into a people who are filled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, who walk by the Spirit, who examine ourselves rightly, who serve others selflessly, and who make your glory known eternally. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.